Heavenly Father, we thank you of the gift that we have prayed and confessed and sung this day. You have given us everything. Receive back a small portion as worship and gratitude and affection to you. And use this for the extension of your kingdom, the good of your people, and the glory of your name. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, if you would remain standing, uh, we are happy to welcome uh, Dr. Allen back to our pulpit. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Epistle to the Hebrews, and we'll be reading chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Pray with me, please. O Lord, may the meditations of all our hearts, may the very desires of our hearts, the passions that drive us, the thoughts and dreams which we lay before us, may they all be shaped by your word. You know us, you know where we have come from, you know where it is we go. As we confessed earlier, not a hair falls from our heads, but it is a part of your plan. And we pray now that this portion of your word might feed us, shape us, mold us more into the image of Christ. And so we do pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable to you. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, Happy New Year. I won't poll you, but statistics would suggest that many of us in the room have made resolutions this week. Some of you will have resolved to deal with your weight, to lose a few pounds. Some of you will have resolved to get back to the gym, to seek health and exercise. Some of you will have resolved to finish something that you'd begun so long ago, perhaps a degree or taking up some avocation or hobby or pursuing some relationship that you had let fall by the wayside, some phone call, some visit that you had simply not followed through upon. It's a week of resolutions. It's also a week of comments from the cynics and the naysayers, isn't it? Just as certain people are trying to sell us things that we might resolve to go to the gym or to eat healthy or do this or that, others are mocking or satirizing the entire notion of New Year's resolutions. It's high season for comedians and the like. And oftentimes I think we despair. We think of how last year went. We think of how far we made it following through on whatever goal or dream we may have concocted. And we grow weary. But as we read God's word, I want to suggest that resolutions are a profound thing. And that far from shooting too high and foolishly falling low, oftentimes we are so contented with the mundane and superficial. And God calls us to raise our resolutions to meet the dreams and hopes that he has for each of us. And in this text from Hebrews you actually see a statement of resolve. That's what a resolution is. It's a commitment. It's a vow of sorts. One made not in public, not before others necessarily, but within one's heart and mind, that oneself would be committed to something and hold tightly to it with resolve. And here in this passage, we see two statements that speak of the resolve that is to mark the Christian. It's not simply to mark us at the beginning of a year. It's not simply to mark us when we're coming down off the exuberance and excitement of holiday season and celebrating Christ's birth. But as we see here, it's to mark us especially in those times when we feel wayward and lost, when we feel forgotten and overrun, when we feel challenged and tried by the ebbs and flows of life. If you look at this passage, you'll see that two things are called for. Verse 14, we read that we are told to let us hold fast our confession. A confession is is something that you believe, you attest, you affirm, you actually throw your weight into it and depend upon it. It's not a mere fact or statistic, It's, it's not a bit of trivia, but it's something that You rely upon, and we're told to hold fast in our confession, or, if you wanted to paraphrase it, to be resolved about our confession. In verse 16, we're told one other thing. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're to be resolved in our reliance 
And we're to be bold in approaching God. Not just God in general, but God upon the throne. God in the throne where we can approach and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. That's a remarkable statement. That's a glorious dream and vision. That's a lot better than a thinning waistline or a little earthly longevity, a restored relationship or a new electronic device you're going to figure out how to work in your household. Being able to approach Almighty God in his heavenly throne room and to do so with boldness and confidence, going forward with your chin up to speak directly to him and to ask him for help in time of need. I don't know about you, but the thought of entering into a throne room, an oval office, a court, is somewhat intimidating to most people. You may not experience that thought, but most human beings experience sweaty palms or shaking knees when they think of approaching a higher authority and power. They stammer. They forget what they were there for, what they might say. They are very self-conscious, wondering what that person thinks of them, what they'll do with them. Notice the, the delight and freedom that's described here. Being able to boldly and confidently walk into God's throne room. Being able to walk forward without a self worried care in the world and to approach God, to speak to God. And notice what we speak to God here, according to verse 16. You don't come in telling God the triumphs of your day or the successes of your religion. You don't go in telling God all he should be proud of in you or all that you've done on his behalf, but you get to approach God boldly to ask for help, to find help in time of need. You see, unlike human authorities, unlike human power brokers, unlike human people who we are so intimidated by because of their power, their significance, their position, God's power is put to our good, not his own. God's strength is for our blessing, not simply his own. God delights to hear of your hurt so that he might help. God delights for us to come and to cry out. And it has always been this way. You'll remember the first time God's people cried out. The book of Exodus tells us that God's children had early on, of course, over 400 years before, been delivered from famine by being brought to Egypt, the story of Joseph and his family. But time had forgotten them, it seemed, and Pharaoh certainly had, and they had fallen into indentured servitude. They were slaves, and they were oppressed. They were overworked. They had no hope, no future, nowhere to go. And they cried out, we read at the end of Exodus 1. And we're told there that God heard their cry, God saw their plight, and God came down to help. You know how the story goes. There's been a movie or two about it. That's the way God works. He delights to hear our cries and to see our need and to come down to help. And what we see in this passage is a description of God's 
greatest help. God's greatest descent. The coming of the Son, Jesus the Christ. Far greater than God working through Moses there in ancient Egypt. Far greater than David being sent off to restore justice to the kingdom of Israel. Far greater than the prophets who were sent to speak truth and to confront power with truth. Jesus is God's own son. And there are two things I think we're told in this passage that are meant to bolster our resolve and to strengthen our confidence that we can approach God. Because if we're honest, that's difficult. We wonder, am I clean enough for God? Am I righteous enough for God? Am I committed enough for God? We wonder, don't I have too many problems for God to want to get involved? Aren't I too small? Aren't these too mundane? Aren't these too silly and trifling? Isn't God frustrated by me bringing the same request to him week after week after decade after decade? But here we're told to boldly come and to approach and to ask and to seek and to do so with freedom. And we're given two reasons. Each of the reasons tells us something about the character and the heart of God revealed in the sending of his son. The way he sends his son and the way he redeems us doesn't just tell you something great about your life or mine, though it does. It reveals something about the heart of God. The way he acts shows the person he is, right? You know this to be true. If you're interviewing someone or if you're being interviewed for a job, people don't simply ask, what are three or four characteristics that describe you, right? No. They ask for stories. Tell me something that demonstrates an occasion where you dealt with difficulty, where you learned from a mistake, where you proved dependability. They want to hear how your actions demonstrate your character. They don't want ornamental window dressing of what you think you're like. That's why they go talk to your former employer, right? Your next-door neighbor, somebody who's going to tell them the truth, right? It's the same with God. We see who God is and we see what God is like by what God does. And in sending his son, God reveals these two profound truths about himself. First, we see that he is able to help us because he's exalted. Look here at verse 14 where we read about this high priest that's been sent on our behalf to stand between us and God. And we read here that This high priest, Jesus, has passed through the heavens. That's a profound statement. That language of passing through is regularly found in texts talking about priests and temples. The catch being that passing through is precisely what you don't get to do. Right? The the temple is a large space within which there's a holy space where you, know, you take your shoes off and you wash your hands and you come in. And then within the holy place is the holy of holies. right? And this is the VIP room of sorts within the temple. And only the great high priest goes in, only once a year, and only after going through remarkable protocols to ensure his cleanliness. And he doesn't pass through. He walks in with a cord around his ankle so that if he gets killed by the presence of God, they can drag him out and he won't make the place dirty, 
right? It's a rather precarious situation. And he goes in only so long to offer the blood of the animal and the sacrifice on top of the Ark of the Covenant and then to get out, right? And it's like that because we're sinners. And God's glory dwells there. And sinners don't get to be in God's glory. You don't get to just saunter through the Holy of Holies. But we're told here, Jesus doesn't just pass through the earthly temple. That'd be too easy. Jesus passes through the heavens themselves. The reality to which that temple is but a small symbol. Jesus has gone into the very presence of God. He is right there. He doesn't need to call out up to the heavens to address God, because our high priest is now at God's right hand, as we've already read in Hebrews 1.4, having made purification for sins. He sat down at the Father's right hand. He bears authority. He bears that intimacy. He is with God forevermore. He is exalted. Not only that, not only is he with God and has he passed through the heavens, but he's up there as the Son of God. We're told by verse 14. He's not an angel. He's not just a human who did really well and got rewarded for it and sort of adopted into the divine family and brought up to spend some time with God in the heavens. He is there by nature, by right. He is himself the Son of God. And so, what we see in him is true of God, right? That's, that's what it's like with sons. This is one of those things that's alarming if you're a parent when you see some of the, the guttural native reactions of your children, especially young children. They reflect you, right? When my son runs around the room or starts screaming or behaves in a certain way, it reflects me. He learned that somewhere. He got that somewhere, Right? And some of it's delightful, some of it's alarming, but that's the way it is with families and kids, right? So it is with the language of the Son here. Jesus shows us the Father. In fact, at the head of your bulletin, we have the statement from John 1 that he has come to show us the Father. He is full of grace and truth, right? God's son, God's only son, is the one through whom he's spoken and revealed himself. Third, we see this twice here in verse 10 and then in verse 6 of chapter 5. We see this reference to this mysterious character of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's one of the oddballs of the Bible, of course. Someone who seemingly has no beginning and no end in the story. We don't know where he's come from or where he goes to. But he comes up quite a bit here in Hebrews. And the point in Hebrews is always to stress the fact that he seems to just live forever. Right? The Bible's very concrete about things. So-and-so, son of so-and-so. Right? The Bible's big on beginnings, starting points. They knew birth dates and locations of where people came from. And the Bible's also pretty big on endings, right? I mean, there are a remarkable number of stories of where people get buried, right? And yet, Melchizedek 
strolls through the Bible and appears in Genesis, in the Psalms, here in Hebrews, neither beginning nor end. It's as though he is everlasting. And Hebrews says that points to something that's deeper and really true of Jesus. Jesus is everlasting. Jesus, unlike the high priests you're familiar with, he doesn't have a term limit. He's not assuming office at one point and handing it over at another. But because he's eternal, because he's everlasting, because he has no limit to his life and no restriction on his power, he continues to serve, mediating God's presence to us. In all these different ways, as one who's passed through the heavens, as one who is himself the Son of God, as one who, like Melchizedek, is really everlasting, Jesus has the strength and power. He has the wherewithal. He has the authority to do you good. And that's remarkably important. Oftentimes we think in our misery and our struggle, if I only had someone to empathize, to be here with me in the misery, I'd be better off. And that might be better in a, for a while and in a time. But we realize, of course, someone who is simply a, a fellow sufferer can't do anything for you ultimately beyond hold your hand. They can't reverse the course of the cancer. They can't repair the marriage that was fissured. They can't change your pattern of sin and struggle and falling into temptation again and again. We need someone who's able, who's capable, who's strong, who's mighty, who has authority and power. And that's precisely the first thing we see of Jesus. He is exalted He bears the Father's authority from his right hand, and he continues to serve as our high priest. But we see a second thing as well of this high priest, that he is willing to do you good because he was humbled on your behalf. Look at verse 15. We don't have a high priest unable to sympathize, but rather... We have one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus did not simply come and immediately atone for sins on the cross, but he journeyed through over three decades of life, of temptation, of struggle. We're told he's the man of sorrows, and that doesn't simply begin in Holy Week. His entire life, he is assaulted by the sinfulness of his culture, of his people, his family. And yet we're told he remains steadfast. He remains resolved. He remains yet without sin. You remember, of course, at the beginning of his earthly ministry as an adult, he went off into the desert and he was tempted three times by the devil. And each and every time he responded with God's word. He didn't respond noting that the allurements, the promises, the temptations weren't appealing. Rather, he responded by entrusting himself to God. Food, bread would have been good, but not on the devil's terms, not if it meant disobedience to God. Deliverance from death and struggle, falling from the top of a temple, would have been good, but not on the devil's terms and not if it meant disobedience to God. 
receiving worship and glory and praise is what he came for in the end, eventually, of course, but not on the devil's terms and not if it meant disobeying his heavenly father. Jesus led a life full of temptation, and he can sympathize with our struggle, with our desire, with our passion, yet he remained without sin. Not only that, but we read in verse 5, he didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by the Father. He's not one who seeks to aggrandize himself, but he's one who seeks, as we saw on Monday Thursday, to serve others, even washing their feet before dying upon a cross on their behalf. In verse 7, we see throughout his life, he prayed to the Father with loud cries and tears. You remember, of course, the story of Gethsemane, where Jesus, knowing what lay ahead of him the very next day, knowing what the cross would involve, knowing that the worst of it wouldn't be his arms and his legs being run through or his side being pierced with a spear, it wouldn't be the gasping for breath, it wouldn't be the, the cruel and unusual punishment that he suffered there at the hands of the Romans, but it would be that alienation from his father, that the son who had known nothing but the divine smile through his entire life would be on that cross, God forsaken. He would scream out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you'll remember in Gethsemane, seeing that down the road, he cried blood. I haven't cried blood. I've cried a lot. But I've never cried blood. With loud cries and tears, Jesus entered in and assumed our condition and walked through our temptations, and he bore our infirmities, as Isaiah tells us in chapter 53. The author goes on in verse 8, He learned obedience through what he suffered, and he was made perfect therein, as a source of eternal salvation. Although he was a son, although he was God incarnate, although he was eternal and full and perfect and blessed, he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. He had to be prepared to be the pure and perfect sacrifice. As a human being, he had to walk through our life. As a human being, he had to walk into the valley of the shadow of death. And he did it. And he did it. At the beginning of his ministry, the devil offered a way out. And at the end of his ministry, you'll remember, as he's there upon the cross, he's mocked. He healed others. He raised others. Why not himself? At the beginning and at the end, he has a temptation to go another course, and he hung there on the cross. Right? And in my favorite line from a a children's Bible, it's pointed out, it wasn't the nails that held him there, right? It was love for you. He proves his willingness to do you good by the humbling that he undergoes on your behalf, by the humiliation, the anguish, the sorrow that he bore to the bitter end for you and for me. It's not enough to have a God with power and authority and might if that God doesn't want to do you good. 
One of my recent avocations and hobbies has been talking to medical insurance companies. I don't wish it on any of you. May it not be your resolution for 2016, but it has become one of my habits. And I'm amazed at the resources of medical insurance companies. They have money. They have people. They have access to all manner of things. But at times, when discussing with them, you don't get the feeling that they are always terribly interested in doing exactly what is of greatest benefit to you in that moment. It's not always the case. There are wonderful people there, and they do provide remarkable services, but there are moments that maybe one or two of you have experienced where you feel like you are attempting to sort of elicit some concern and some help from someone who could easily help you at no great cost to them, right? but doesn't seem motivated to do so. It doesn't help if there's a rich guy down the street and you're suffering in poverty and you don't know the guy, right? It doesn't help if there's someone who knows some bit of information down the road and you need to know that, but you can't converse with them, right? If we are to be helped in our time of need, we need someone who has both the ability and the willingness to help us. And what we see here, what we see in the gospel, what the only son of the father reveals because he's full of grace and truth is that God, almighty God, is father of the heavens and the earth and he can do anything for you. And God, almighty God, is the father of Jesus Christ and he's done the only thing that really matters for you. And so you can boldly approach him and you can ask for help in time of need. And that gives you remarkable strength to maintain resolve in your confession in the face of smaller difficulties and more meager trials. And I want to suggest that as we look ahead at the year to come, and as we begin to imagine what it might involve and where we might go and what we might do and who God might fashion us to be, that we remain centered on basic things. They're not basic because they're small. They're basic because they're more profound and they're more beautiful. Things like who God is and what his heart is revealed to be in the gospel of Jesus. That we not be content with superficialities, with earthly goods, but that we let those go, that we might find our delight, that we might find our strength, that we might find grace and mercy and help in time of need there at the throne room of heaven where Jesus, your high priest, who still bears wounds, with your name on them, speaks and ministers and cares for you. You'll remember the last words Jesus is telling his disciples according to the gospel, according to Matthew. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he gives what's oftentimes referred to as the Great Commission. Going, therefore, I tell you, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There are remarkable truths there about who we're to be, what mission we're on, why God has us here on this earth, for his sake and his kingdom, not our own. But we dare not forget what comes just before and what follows just after. Before he tells them to make disciples, to go, to baptize, to teach, 
He says, behold, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it's no trifling matter when he tells you what to do. And right after he gives us that remarkable word and that commission, he tells them, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's no small promise coming from the one who sits at the throne of heaven. And so as we look ahead to our mission, to the advancement of his kingdom, to all that we can and can't imagine, remember that, that he sits at the Father's right hand as your high priest and savior, that he calls for you to be resolved and to be bold in asking for help because he delights in hearing and answering you. Let's pray. God, our Father, would you... Teach us and wean us off our silly notions that you only love the strong. Help us to revel with Paul in the truth that your glory is shown in our weakness. Your strength is shown in shoring us up. And that your life is received only for those who share in Christ's death and rise again with him. And so we pray that you would give us that deep faith, that abiding hope, and that growing love for you. We pray that your word would be hid within our hearts, that we might not sin against you or waver far from you. And we revel in that truth, that though we may go to the left or the right or up and down, you hold us in the palm of your hand and you promise that not a single child of yours will be lost. And so, our Father, we turn in this and every day to you for our good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And now, if you'd respond to God.